Christian, in your reading of the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you ever noticed that when Jesus confronts sin, he never seems to respond the same way twice? Depending on the person, the context, the sin itself, Jesus' response to sin differs. And if we're looking for it, we quickly see a pattern. Our Lord confronts sin in his public ministry in a way that reveals to the people something of who he is. Twelve years ago, when I bought Jill's engagement ring, the various rings I was comparing and inspecting were brought out of a locked display case and then placed before me on a brown scrap of felt. Uh, And that unflattering color and material is very well chosen. It causes the brilliance of the gold and the luster of the diamond to stand out in very sharp contrast. And it's the same thing when Jesus confronts sin. Some facet of our Lord's divine perfection is always brought to the fore by the sins of other people. Perhaps it's his authority that we see, or how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Perhaps we see the love of Jesus, or his forgiveness, or his grace, or his holy anger. For instance, Jesus tells a rich young ruler, a man who loves money more than anything else in life, to sell everything he has and to follow him. In essence, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, following me is more important than all your money and all your possessions. I'm to be the number one priority in your life. Jesus confronts sin and he makes an authority claim. Jesus tells a Samaritan woman living in sexual sin to bring her common-law husband to him, which, in the context of John 4, is a way of showing the woman just how badly she needs the living water, the Holy Spirit, which only Jesus can provide. Jesus tells Nicodemus, a man who is sinfully presuming upon his Jewish heritage for admittance into the kingdom of God, that he must be born again if he's to see or enter into God's kingdom. And Jesus tell him, tells him, I've come down from heaven to tell you this. Our Lord confronts sin in his public ministry in a way that reveals to people something of who he is. And friend, perhaps you've come to our service this morning asking, who is Jesus? That's good. That's an essential question to ask. And the Bible answers that question in part by telling you to study Jesus' actions. Study Jesus' deeds. But to be clear, this sermon, our text today, isn't about imitating Jesus. And so confronting the sin in this world just like he confronts sin. No, this text, this sermon is about Christology. It's about Jesus' confrontation with sin and sinners, what it teaches us about himself. And in light of those very popular but misguided um, WWJD, what would Jesus do, bracelets, way back in the 1990s, uh, it's important that we understand that often what Jesus does as he confronts sin is unique. It's unique to his person. It's unique to his ministry. In other words, Jesus adopts approaches to sin and confronts sinners in their sin in ways which we must never adopt. Because to do so would be a blasphemous presumption. 
right? Jesus is the incarnate eternal God. And we always need to keep that creator-creature distinction very clear in our minds. We are not God. Jesus' mission in this world and our mission in this world, they aren't one and the same. We only have to look at the cross, right, and see how true that is. So, if you want to wear a bracelet that's a bit more biblically faithful, then what would the incarnate Son of God do in this situation? Because I'll do the same. Instead, wear a bracelet that asks, what would Jesus have me do? What does Jesus command me to do? That's a better way of looking at it. This morning, I want us to consider how Jesus responds to sin, how he responds to sinners from three passages in Mark's gospel, from chapter 1, verse 40 to 2, 17. If you have your bulletin, you can look at the big picture that I've included there. The big picture is this of our text. Jesus confronts sin in his public ministry in a way that reveals to people something of who he is. How does Jesus confront sin? With holy indignation and a cleansing touch. By forgiving the sinner, a prerogative of God alone, and with grace. This is all expressed in a context of divine messianic authority. But Jesus is also the main party sinned against, thus making Jesus' compassion and grace utterly unique. And it's essential that we understand this portrait Mark paints because the evangelist is describing who Jesus is through his actions and through his deeds. Point number one in our bulletin. How does Jesus confront sin? With holy indignation and a cleansing touch. Now, as we come to this account of Jesus healing a leper, we need to be careful not to lump this in with all the other healing miracles in Jesus' ministry. Like this is number seven in a series of 25. And yet another demonstration of divine power. I think that's how a lot of Christians, we just sort of, it's very reductionistic in how we look at the miracles of Jesus Christ. It's like, well, he's God, and there he's doing supernatural stuff, so every single miracle attests to his deity, and that's kind of where we leave it. Um, all of Jesus' miracles, as he ministers in the power of the Spirit, have significance. Right? They're all, all of them, silent sermons. They preach to Israel, they preach to us. About, the, about Jesus' office as the anointed one, uh, the nearness of the kingdom, the pushing back of Satan's kingdom of darkness, the necessity of repentance and faith, and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus' miracles are never simply displays of raw power. But healing a leper is a special kind of miracle. It provides for the onlookers, and in this case, particularly the priests in the temple in Jerusalem, a very unique sort of testimony. Because in Old Covenant culture, leprosy was a fate worse than death. Now, I know that's a cliche to say. I mean, we say to ourselves, oh, it's a fate worse than death. But in this culture, dealing with leprosy, that's actually true. It's literally true. And cleansing someone of their leprosy in this culture was seen as the equivalent of raising somebody from the dead. It was an action only God could perform, and God had done so only twice before in Israel's history. Their whole history, God had only cleansed two lepers. Do you know who? Miriam, Moses' sister in Numbers 12, 
and Naaman, right, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, 2 Kings 5. Only twice. Now, leprosy, medically speaking, is what we today call Hansen's disease, uh, which manifests itself in terrible skin lesions. It's a, it's a horrible thing. Horrible. Uh, but the Greek word for leprosy in the text doesn't necessarily mean Hansen's disease, uh, though it would include it. Scribes in Jesus' day counted 72 conditions that qualified as a leprous infection. So boils, burns, itches, ringworm, psoriasis, scalp, scalp conditions. Um, let me just read to you from Leviticus, Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. Like, imagine that's your mother. As long as they have the disease, they must remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. This isn't simply a, a, a description of a medical illness, right? This is a sentence. A serious skin disease robbed a Jew of their health, their name, their occupation, habits, family, and the fellowship of the worshiping community. They were cut off from that completely. They were banished from society for fear of spreading religious impurity. They were unfit to live inside the camp within the vicinity of the tabernacling presence of God. This is why people with leprosy were viewed as almost zombies, right? As living corpses, because like a corpse, a leper could impart ceremonial impurity to objects and to people found within that same enclosure. Leprosy would defile the tabernacle. And God's abiding presence with his people depended on uncleanliness being excluded from the camp. Obviously, that translates over into the temple as well, into the city of Jerusalem. That's how it was looked at. But Jesus' reputation as a healer has reached even this man, this leper, who's, who's cut off from society. And of course, how this fellow goes about requesting to be healed is none too kosher. He's supposed to stay 50 feet back, according to custom. So his bold approach actually compromises Jesus' ceremonial cleanliness. That needs to be understood. Nevertheless, the leper risks everything. He doesn't care, right? Breaking both law and custom on the chance of being healed and restored by Jesus. The man is desperate. He comes to Jesus begging on his knees. Verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice he doesn't question Jesus' ability to save him, only his willingness. This man has faith. But according to the NIV translation, in verse 41, Jesus responds to this faithful request with indignation. Now, if we're reading another translation, it will probably say the exact opposite, that Jesus was filled with compassion, which is what the footnote reads in the NIV, if you're using that Bible. That's because there's a textual variant at this point. Different Greek manuscripts say different things. I'm no expert, all right, but I believe the NIV translation committee probably made the right decision in going with indignation, though if you want the variant, it's there in the footnote. However, if indignation is the correct reading, we need to ask ourselves, 
Why in the world does Jesus react with anger? Why is he incensed by this? It's because Jesus, who is the holy God, is being confronted with the effects of living in a fallen world. And his reaction is one of holy indignation. It's one of holy anger. It's the same reaction we see from Jesus in John 11 at Lazarus' tomb, isn't it? Our Lord is being consistent. John eleven thirty two. 32. I'll just read this. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And there's been a tradition in English translations, to water that Greek phrase down, deeply moved in spirit, what the text says is that Jesus is outraged. In both places, in Mark and in John, God in human form is confronting the effects of the fall, and it makes him angry. It makes him weep. This leper in Mark 1, this this man is a son of Abraham, and he's been reduced to one of the walking dead, cast out of the covenant community because of the effects of living in a fallen world, a world of illness and death and war and rape and disease, and century after century after century of rebellion against the holy and perfect creator. Jesus is incensed. He is indignant as he confronts the pain and the disease and the misery because he understands much more than we do That this is God's sentence on sin, culminating in death. And the only way to set things right is for him to go to Golgotha in obedience to his father. Jesus must go to the cross and die. The son of man must become sin, endure the wrath of his father and die. And as Jesus looks at this poor leper, he looks at the bigger picture And he's filled with holy indignation. The the CEB, the Common English Bible. Jesus was incensed, it reads. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus reaches out his hand and confronts sin, and he confronts sin's effects. Jesus doesn't recoil. He reaches out his hand, and he deliberately touches this unclean leper. But rather than Jesus being polluted by the man's contagious disease, the man is healed by Jesus' holy power. And for the third time in all of Israel's history, God cleanses a leper. But this is no mere display of raw, miraculous power. It's for a purpose. Jesus is preaching a sermon through this healing miracle. He's fulfilling prophecy. And he's showing the witnesses and the priests back in Jerusalem that the kingdom of God has indeed come near. Verse 43. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So for the the third time in Israel's history, they're going to get this testimony now. Do you remember what Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples when John was doubting whether or not uh, Jesus was the Messiah? I just want you to quickly turn over to to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. If you're using our 
NIV Church Bible. It's on page 976. I just want you to keep your finger here, too. When John, this is Matthew eleven two. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? That's John the Baptist asking that question. And notice, it's the Messiah's deeds that prompt John the Baptist to ask this. John the Baptist preached that the one coming after him would not only baptize his people with the Holy Spirit, but he would serve as stern judge, right, and purify the nation with fiery judgment. So keep your finger there in Matthew 11. Just flip back to Matthew 3.10 for a second. Here we have John the Baptist. Here's his ministry. What he's saying? He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But what does he find? Now Jesus is on the scene. Now Jesus is... Doing his public ministry. On the one hand, sure, this Jesus, his cousin, I mean, whom he's publicly identified as the Messiah, he's going about, he's doing good, apparently mightily endued with the Holy Spirit, and performing the tasks and miracles promised for the Messianic age. The gospel is being preached to the poor, the dead are raised, the blind receive their sight. But on the other hand, there doesn't seem to be any exercising of stern judgment. Sure, it's fine to heal the sick. It's fine to raise the dead and cast out demons and still storms and preach righteousness and announce the coming of the kingdom has come near. But what about justice? What about judgment? Had the corruptions and cruelties of Caesar been shut down? Had hypocritical temple leaders been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod been confronted? And why in the world is he, John the Baptist... The Messiah's personal prophet. Why is he languishing in prison for challenging the morals of Herod while the Messiah himself does nothing about it? So, Matthew eleven two. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And how does Jesus respond? Jesus claims that the Old Testament messianic prophecies are being fulfilled in the miracles that he's performing. And his preaching the good news to the poor is an explicit fulfillment of those messianic promises as well. God's kingdom is advancing. Uh, Satan's dominion is being pushed back. So Jesus replies like this. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Make no mistake, judgment is coming. First, Jesus is judged for the sins of his people, and then the world is judged when he returns in glory to consummate his kingdom. In the meantime, the gospel is preached to all nations. Verse 43. 
Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning to this leper. Verse 44, see to it that you don't tell this to anyone. Because Jesus wants to keep his reputation as a miracle worker at a low ebb. Otherwise, as we saw last week, people had the tendency to see him as a benevolent genie. And they just swamp him with with appeals for healing. But without repentance and without faith. Verse 44, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And he says that because according to Leviticus 14, it's the legal responsibility of the priest to make pronouncements regarding serious skin conditions. And if a clean bill of health is issued by the priest, the cleansed person would then present two birds, one of which was killed at the temple in Jerusalem. The other bird was then dipped in the blood of the slain bird and then released. After waiting a period of eight days, the cleansed person then brought to the priest three lambs to be sacrificed, along with three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour. And Jesus says that this man's healing is to serve as the testimony to the priests in Jerusalem, a testimony that the kingdom of God has come near. The Messiah is performing his works. Lepers are being cleansed. The gospel is being preached to the poor. But lepers are being cleansed. Brothers and sisters, this is a last times eschatological healing on the same level in many ways as raising a person from death. And Jesus is telling this man to present his miraculously cleansed flesh to the religious leaders in Jerusalem who then must verify the fact. Now, if this man went to the priest to offer his sacrifices, we don't know. What we do know is that he broke Jesus' command to be silent. Verse 45. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So after he's been healed by Jesus, the leper's earnestness and humility turns to complacency. It turns to disregard. And as a result of his disobedience, Jesus can no longer enter a town openly, but has to stay outside in lonely places or he's going to be swamped. All right, then. What's this text teaching us? What does it teach us about ourselves and our sin and this world's only Savior? Point number one in your bulletin. Jesus confronts sin with holy indignation and a cleansing touch. And friends, I think the first half of that sentence needs to be acting like a sobering splash of ice water in our faces. Jesus, who is God, responds with holy Righteous anger against sin. Now, why he does so, we'll explore more in our second point, but this is a biblical fact that needs to fill us with a godly, sober fear because our sin is who we are at such a basic level. And it makes Jesus angry. Our sin keeps us outside the camp. Our sin keeps us from dwelling in God's presence. Our sin makes us spiritual lepers. And yet, God doesn't shrink back and refuse to touch sinners. Instead, he goes to great lengths to cleanse us from our defilement. He he sends his son 
to die on a cross. And Jesus' blood, Jesus' life, violently offered up in the place of sinners, purifies his people from all contamination. God is willing to touch sinners and to cleanse us. God is willing to become a human being, to enter fully into our experience and die as the purification sacrifice on behalf of his people. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How does Jesus confront sin? With holy indignation and a cleansing touch. Thank God for that. Point number two in your bulletin. How does Jesus confront sin? By forgiving the sinner. A prerogative, a right of God alone. And it's at this point that Mark's narrative takes a turn. The stories in his gospel, from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through 3, verse 6, are of one piece. All right? And the linking feature is an increasing awareness that though Jesus is attracting huge crowds, not everyone welcomes his ministry and his activity. And it's here that the tide begins to turn against Jesus. Very early on in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus encounters five controversies at this point in his ministry with the Jewish religious leaders. That's where Mark takes us next. So there's the forgiving of the sins of the paralytic, the, the social and moral scum that he keeps company with, his disciples' lack of fasting, and then two Sabbath day infractions. And the end result of these five controversies is a plot is made on Jesus' life. So by chapter 3, verse 6 of Mark's gospel, the religious leaders want the long-prophesied anointed one dead. Just look, look at chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The, almost the beginning of chapter 3, that's how quick it was. But this is where that change begins, chapter 2, verse 1. So let's read the text. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. See, that emphasis on the preaching, the nearness of the coming of the kingdom. Prepare, repent. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And here we see the same kind of faith, the same kind of desperation that the leper exercised in the last chapter. Right? There's no way that these men can carry their friend on his mat through this crowd to get healed by Jesus. The crowds are just too thick. So they scramble up the stairway along the side of the house onto the flat roof and they start ripping the roof apart. Now, what the owner of that house thought about these guys doing this, I, <laughs> I can't imagine. We're not told. Nor are we told how the people down below, who are presumably just packing out the house, are feeling about all this dust and crud falling onto their heads. Um, but to do something, obviously, so socially obnoxious. I mean, just think about it. That's a socially obnoxious thing to do. There must have been no doubt whatsoever in their minds that Jesus was capable of healing their friend. 
their paralyzed friend. Just rip the roof up, lower him down in front of him, and he's going to get healed. And their faith is rewarded. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I've always wondered what the paralyzed man thought in that moment, because those probably aren't the words he wanted to hear. No, no, no. How about, son, your paralysis is healed. Oh, yeah, that'd be a whole lot better. Your sins are forgiven. How is something like that even verified? Anybody can just say that. Your sins are forgiven. And this is the only time in Jesus' public ministry where he prefaces a healing by announcing a person to be forgiven of their sins. Why does he do that? We need to proceed carefully here. Because there's a lot of bad teaching on this subject in broader evangelicalism. But the Bible does state that there can be a direct line of relationship between illness and sin. The Bible does say that. Uh, That isn't always the case, of course. There isn't a necessary link. I want to be clear. But just look at a man like Job. Right? Job was a righteous man, yet he suffered terribly. There was no one on the whole earth like Job. Or consider the man born blind in John 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Nevertheless, the New Testament informs us that some illnesses are, in fact, the product of sin. There can, there can be a relationship between sin and illness. Do you recall what Jesus said to the invalid in John 5, 14, after he heals him? See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Or think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 to 11. They died as a result of their sin, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, in regard to the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. And it doesn't have to be a supernatural judicial sentence as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. It can be the natural outworking of cause and effect under God's providence. There are certainly illnesses and deaths that are the consequence of sinful lifestyle choices and sinful acts of behavior. How many people are ill in this world as a direct result of suppressed hatred, suppressed anger, suppressed jealousy, bitterness, fear, guilt? How many illnesses are related to to stress and anxiety? How many people are ill because of alcohol and drug abuse or sexual immorality? How many illnesses are related to the unabashed workaholic pursuit of wealth? How many illnesses and deaths are the result of gluttony? So it would seem, it would seem that by Jesus forgiving this man's sins, his paralysis is directly linked to his sins. That's where the majority of the commentators went that way. Perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps this man was a drunkard who fell off his roof one night while he was three sheets to the wind and he broke his back. And the whole town knows about it, right? Or perhaps the whole town just assumed that because this man was such a sinful wretch, of course he was paralyzed. Is it any wonder? 
God was punishing him for all his terrible sins, which were notorious in the community. Whatever the case, this is the only time in Jesus' public ministry where he prefaces a healing by announcing a person to be forgiven of their sin. The only time. Verse 6. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. The scribes, though, they clearly see what's happening. Jesus isn't merely pronouncing a state of affairs. He's not just saying, um, this man's sins have now been forgiven with the, with the dawning of the coming of the kingdom or some such thing like that. Uh, no, Jesus is personally forgiving the man for his rebellious anarchy and retreason against God. But that's a prerogative of God alone. Only God has that right. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So what began as a heartwarming healing story, ripping up the roof and, you know, <laughs> it suddenly become this confrontation over religious authority. It's a confrontation over who Jesus is. Christology. Don Carson makes an excellent point here. Um, I'll say this with... Uh, who can I pick on? <laughs> uh, I'll pick on Peter. Peter, if, if you were attacked and robbed in an alleyway and beaten within an inch of your life, and if I were to pay you a visit in the hospital, and if I were to announce, Peter, don't worry about a thing. I, I forgave all your attackers. You would be deeply hurt by my insensitivity and my stupidity in saying such a thing. Uh, why? Because it's not my place to forgive your attackers. It's for you to forgive your attackers. You were the one that they beat to a pulp and robbed. But Jesus has just that kind of authority to forgive sin. Jesus can come to you and say, I forgive the men who attacked you. I forgive the person who molested you as a child. I forgive the person who killed your spouse in a drunk driving accident because I am the party most sinned against. Sin as is first and foremost vertical in its orientation before it's horizontal. Sin is always, always first directed towards God before it's directed towards other people. In every sin... Even sins ostensibly committed against one's neighbor, just directly against the neighbor, God is still the most offended party. Which is why after his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, David confesses to God in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, from a human perspective, it's safe to pronounce the forgiveness of sins, since that statement can't be falsified. Jesus, however, will provide evidence of the paralytic's forgiveness by healing him, which is something that can be verified by all. Right? So look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He gets very explicit. Jesus wants the scribes to know to experience firsthand the authority by which he forgives sins. In verse 7, the scribes ask, who can forgive sins? That is, who has the ability to forgive sins? And Jesus declares that not only does the Son of Man have has the ability to do that, he actually has the authority to do so. And that tells us a lot about who Jesus is. But I want verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And who is this Son of Man? Turn quickly to Daniel chapter 7. This is, a, this is a good text to kind of have at your fingertips. If you have your own Bible, I would underline this section. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 890. But Daniel 7, 13 and following. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7, the one who dwells in God's unmediated presence, the one who receives from God himself the prerogatives, the rights of deity, divine authority, divine glory, and divine sovereign power. All those, those three things are in that text. All nations, all peoples of every language worship him. And he receives from the ancient of days, from God himself, a kingdom that is eternal and indestructible. All those entitlements are divine. You can't say that about angels or anybody. It's got to be divine. And so, if the Son of Man is God, that means Jesus, who is the Son of Man, indeed has authority to forgive sin. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Can you imagine the fearful solemnity that would have settled on the crowd at that moment? The holy reverence. A man's sins have just been personally forgiven by another human being. A prerogative of God alone. And then the paralyzed man proves that his sins have indeed been forgiven by getting up off his mat and walking home. We've never seen anything like this. How does Jesus confront sin? By forgiving the sinner. That's a prerogative, a right of God alone. What does this say about Jesus? Sinner, Be hopeful. Be hopeful. This is the greatest, most joyful news you will ever hear in all of your life. God, the most offended party by your sin, the one whom alone you have sinned against, forgives sinners in Jesus Christ. And he will save you. He will forgive you. He will save you not only from sin's chaining power, 
but from sin's eternal consequences. Consequences bound up with God's solemn sentence, with God's holy wrath. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how disgusting your sins may be, how depraved your sins may be, how wicked or evil a person you may feel yourself to be, or how far beyond the pale of human forgiveness you believe that you've gone. Know this. The God who lives in unapproachable holiness is also gracious. He is a gracious God. And he confronts sin, sin which fills him with holy anger, righteous anger. And instead of drawing back his hand and refusing to cleanse, refusing to heal, instead he lavishes upon guilty sinners unmerited favor and divine forgiveness. And that's the point that Mark makes in our third and concluding point. How does Jesus confront sin? With grace. Unmerited favor. Look at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, if we're going to understand this passage properly, then we need to understand something about the, uh, the Roman tax system, which was very complex. It was varied. Land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but taxes on transported goods were contracted out to local collectors, most of whom were ethnic Jews. But probably not observant Jews, since Torah-conscious Israelites did not transact business with Gentiles. So Levi, who is also the Matthew of Matthew 9.9 and the author of the Gospel according to Matthew, the same person, he's one of these none-too-observant Jewish middlemen. And, And Levi would have had made bids in advance to collect taxes in a given area. I mean, you can just see the, <laughs> this is the potential for corruption with that. Right? You're making bids. I will collect X number of taxes on this and, in this area. And a portion of the receipts actually stayed in his own pockets. That was, those were kind of the rules. So tax collectors were despised by the Jews, but a Jew who collected taxes for Rome was the worst sort of scum. Such a person was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. He was expelled from the synagogue. Levi would have been expelled from the synagogue in a cause of disgrace to his family. And the touch of a tax collector, according to the man-made laws of the religious leaders, rendered a house ceremonially unclean, just like a leper's touch. That's how bad this was. This man, Levi, he is a social pariah. He is morally contemptuous. Now, Jesus is teaching to a very large crowd. He has hundreds of people to, to, to choose from. But the Lord deliberately calls Levi, of all people, into fellowship with himself. Again, this says something about who Jesus is. After World War II, uh, head shaving became a common punishment in France, the Netherlands, and Norway for women who had collaborated with the Nazis during the occupation in particular for women who had collaborated sexually, who were willing mistresses of, uh, for German soldiers and who had given birth to German babies. Over 12,000 kraut kids, as they were called, were born in Norway alone during the occupation. 12,000. 
But after those places were liberated by the Allies, the townspeople shaved the women's heads in the public square and then marched them through the streets, forcing them to give the Nazi salute. You can, you can actually find pictures of this online. There was no pity for these women. These women were pure scum, and their kids were treated like dirt, too. Now imagine as these bald-headed women are being marched through the streets, being publicly shamed and spat upon, someone were to open the door of their home and offer one of these ladies shelter. That person would be sending a very clear signal, wouldn't they? And the indignation of the entire town would fall upon them. Well, Jesus' acceptance of Levi sent a clear signal too. So clear, in fact, that verse 15 tells us that many tax collectors and sinners joined him and his disciples for dinner. Isn't that beautiful? That, like, that, that, that acceptance, that love was just so plain that lots of tax collectors, lots of sinners want to have dinner with Jesus. And let me tell you, just anybody who showed up at that dinner could kiss their good Jewish reputation goodbye. In fact, most of the people at that dinner didn't have a reputation to lose. But Jesus doesn't care. He responds to sin with grace. He responds to sin with unmerited favor. And that, loved ones, tells us something about what God is like. It's a very important, very beautiful picture. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house... Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. What a badge of honor. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or as the New Living Translation puts it, Why does he eat with such scum? Good question. Why does Jesus eat with such scum? Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, I know it's a free country and all, and morality is more and more a subjective thing in our culture. But what would most people think, morally speaking, all right, of a person who goes through years and years of medical school, who specializes in reconstructive plastic surgery, and then sets up shop in Beverly Hills, doing nose jobs and breast enhancements to the tune of $500,000 a month, compared to the plastic surgeon who moves to South America to work in a children's hospital, helping kids with terrible deformities and life-threatening mutations. Right? Morally speaking... I mean, which, which doctor is operating on a higher plane? It's the sick who need a doctor. And spiritually speaking, all of us are sick, paralyzed lepers. And here comes Jesus, the great physician, the God of the universe, the anointed one, the party most sinned against, the, the glorious Son of Man from Daniel 7. And how does he confront sin? With grace with undeserved healing and forgiveness. And make no mistake, Jesus is speaking ironically in verse 17. There is no class of person called the righteous to whom the call of Jesus is irrelevant. 
No one is righteous. Everyone is sick. Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs salvation. The healing that he gives. Everybody. Brothers and sisters, in these three stories, we see our salvation in miniature. Just as with these three people, so Jesus confronts our sin with holy indignation, but also with a healing touch, a cleansing touch. He he graciously forgives us, even though he is the most sinned against party. And that's something to be marveled at. That's why Christians sing songs to God, praising him for his salvation mercies. Right? That's why we meet together with other purified, forgiven sinners to corporately praise him. That's why we offer up our lives to him as living sacrifices of worship. It's all because his anointed one responds to sin in this way as a doctor seeking out paralyzed social pariah lepers. That's us. That's me. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friend, let me ask you, do you picture yourself, spiritually speaking, in those sorts of terms? As a sick, paralyzed, social pariah leper. If not, then despair. Because Jesus isn't seeking you. Jesus seeks sinners. Not self-righteous people like you. As things presently stand, you have no hope. And if you die today, be warned, you will go to hell. Where you will find many self-righteous persons just like yourself. Heaven, on the other hand, is full, full of repentant sinners saved by Jesus Christ. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So come to him, sinner. Don't delay a moment longer. An abundance of healing and mercy and grace and forgiveness is all there for the asking. All you need to do is humble yourself before God and ask for it through Christ Jesus. How does Jesus confront sin with holy indignation and a cleansing touch by forgiving the sinner a prerogative of God alone and with grace. Amen.